This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Henry IV's Disappearing Head. Player Choice versus Character Believability. Gerard and Coase. And Andre Breton. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. It's time once again for Ask Ken and Robin. We've been doing some covert Ask Ken and Robins over the last few episodes, but here's an overt one, and one in the Gallic flavor of much of the rest of the episode. Stephanie asks, how would you use the assassination of Henry IV of France and the subsequent disappearance and eventual reappearance of his head in a role-playing game? Now, Ken, uh, Henry IV of France was known as a Good King Henry later after he was dead and people realized that they missed him. <laughs> after but, he was sub succeeded by Louis the 14th, 15th, and 16th, they were like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out they're terrible. <laughs> He's known for uh, ending or at least dampening the French uh, wars of religion. He did that by starting out as a uh, Huguenot and then converting to Catholicism when he became a king of all of France instead of just piddly old Navarre. So consequently, Protestants and Catholics both hated him. Yes. And uh, this uh, led to his demise. But before we get to his demise, what else do we have to know about uh, Henry IV before we set up any peregrinations or plot devices surrounding the movement of his uh, head? 
I mean, I think that the thing, I mean, you pretty much covered the thing that we need to know about him is that he was a Protestant. He uh, famously said, Paris is worth a mass when uh, he realized that he would have to convert to Catholicism to win the wars of religion and become king of France, uh, which is, at least in Protestant circles, has always been seen as one of the utterly mo- most utterly cynical things that someone in power has said, even for a French monarch, <laughs> which is saying something. I'm sure that for Catholic Parisians, it's it's just self-evident. But of course, why would you not? So perhaps uh, if he had well, said... They, they, many of them doubted his sincerity. So that... yeah, if, he had, if he had said something on the order of um, uh, Chicago is well worth a, a steak fry, then I, I suppose I would have been more more on his side in that. But as you point out, he was, in fact, good King Henry, certainly by comparison to the rotten kings Louis after him. He cared about the people and tried to improve their lives. And lot. he tried to stop people from slaughtering Huguenots for no reason whatsoever, which put off the utter collapse of France for, I guess, in the end, about exactly 200 years. So, good for him. He was uh, stabbed by a, uh, by a Jesuit, uh, those guys, or possibly by a crypto-Jesuit, depending on, I guess, which history you, you believe. Um, and he was... Uh, he was caught in traffic, so it's a, a weirdly modern assassination. The guy, he, the, the carriage is jammed up, and the guy runs out into the street, climbs up into the carriage, and stabs him, which, of course, is the famous Sarajevo model of assassination that would later be perfected uh, in World War in the, in the immediate beginning of World War One, and then used a lot in the 20s on various folks, and eventually, I guess, on um, uh, JFK, although without the running into traffic part uh, being necessary. So that's the magic story of Henri. He is always... He's pregnant with alternate history possibilities because obviously he might have thought Paris was not in fact worth a mass, or he um, might have thought it, and then as a result, the wars of religion get prolonged. And he, by the guy who sort of spawns those Louis, he is genetically responsible for a lot of stuff going down forward. Because if the various Bourbon cousins had had been kings of France, it would have been a different sort of inbred uh, psychopathy that ran ran the place. So. Good for them. Right. And if you want to picture him from his portraits, he looks like uh, you would cast like Jonathan Price to play him. Yeah, kind of an older, tubbier Jonathan Price, not your skinny, weird Jonathan Price. But uh, today's Jonathan Price, maybe with some pain. Yeah, right. Yeah, you give him free reign at the craft services table and uh, tell him Paris is worth a mess. He has those Jonathan Price sad eyes, that's for sure, which I yeah. suspect comes from wars of religion and then realizing Paris may or may not have been worth a mess. <laughs> after people start yelling at you for not being good King Henry. So we've got to the stabby stabby in the uh, in the coach, mm-hmm. and what's up with his uh, ultimate uh, destination of his head? Well, he gets uh, covered in shellac and put in the, the Basilica de Saint-Denis, uh, there where you put uh, dead French kings. And are they typically shellac? I, I think that they're sort of made all shiny. They're embalmed up, and then they're, they're shinied up so that they don't just start rotting immediately and creep everyone out, because it's... It's way too big a metaphor to, to walk in and um, uh, see your king just, you know, putrefying. You kind of, I mean, it's not full on Lenin, but it's, uh, but it's, it, there's a degree of, of work to be, to be done. So anyway, the head is, is sitting there in the basilica until, of course, there is a French revolution in 1790. Well, the revolution gets to the point of desecrating royal graves in 1793. Someone goes in and says, oh, I'm going to steal that guy's head. He's not the king of me. And uh, there they do. And obviously that is some sort of magical necessity that requires a, a head of a king or the head of a man who's been in, you know, baptized twice or, or some magical item was vitally required that you get Henri IV's head. And it just sort of, you know, goes around. Uh, Wikipedia says among private collectors because, duh, 
<laughs> and then eventually it's tracked down in the home of a tax collector named Jacques Belanger. Um, he bought it in 1955 from a brother and sister couple, which, you know, France, good lord. And then he donates it, uh, I think quite rightly, to um, uh, the Duke of Anjou, who is descended from Henri IV, and the guy sort of who's left of the of the line of of, of Henri Navarre. And uh, he then, I guess, puts it in a... Um, oh, they put it back in the uh, Basilica de Saint-Denis, so good for them. And I assume that there was a great deal of politi- political hoop de around it, because the French are very sensitive about their royals. Um, they They don't like it when you say nice things about them. They are very, very fond of their revolution, which they worked so very hard and so many different times to in, to ensure and uh, if you are if you are too fond of their royals they will look askance at you so i i hope that the the nice treatment accorded to his head did not anger new fanatics right well maybe he gets a bit more of a pass than uh, some of the other uh, sobs who were uh, yes. <laughs> kings of yeah. france yeah well i mean uh, one one certainly hopes that the french have uh, some sort of perspective over their national history and having said that we move rapidly along so, so Robin, let me turn this around. You're normally the guy who asks me what to do uh, with a severed head. What are you going to do with a severed head in a Robin game, the severed head of King Henry IV, nonetheless? Well, uh, I guess you first of all want to look at where the beginning of the craziness begins. It begins during the French Revolution. So the first question you want to ask yourself is, what's more interesting, uh, whether the initial taking of the head is taken as part of this revolutionary fervor when, you know, the whole country has gone blood simple and somebody just runs in and decides to uh, make off with a head. And then later, of course, something more interesting has to happen. The next person whose uh, hands it falls into has to have some sort of interesting supernatural uh, plan uh, in effect. And so you want to go back into your history and do a bit more research and find out, you know, what interesting things happened around that time that might have signaled that the, uh, you know, the use of the, and it might be something that you would turn on its head, right? Because if he was a good king, uh, so to, so to speak, um, it might mean you would have to take this, you know, vital part of the one good recent king and take him off and uh, work some sort of magic to calm down the terror. And so maybe this is something that uh, initially, the initial bit of magic had a pacifying effect and led to this sort of tapering off. The Thermidorian reaction, basically. Yes. Uh, but of course, in the, you know, the laws of tampering uh, with the supernatural and forces beyond tell us that there's always a price to be paid. And so then you might want to uh, either... Uh, create a totally fictional chain of custody for the head going down through history. Um, and, uh, you know, increasingly uh, the separation between the head and the rest of the king is causing more and more problems, and the head is trying to work its way back to the basilica. And anyone who wants to keep the head is facing a curse. Uh, in which uh, that sort of implies that you have an investigation uh, in the 50s that leads to it being uh, taken to the tax collector, who maybe in this scenario would be sort of your patron, who the reason that he wants to reunite the head with the body is because he's knowledgeable in the ways of the occult and sees how things are are going uh, terribly sideways. And maybe, you know, that's why the, the occupation came about and all these other things. And now it's starting to cause trouble in Algeria. So why don't you 
investigators go and find who really has the head and get it back from them. And so it could be somebody that you would uh, base on this uh, brother-sister couple and make them uh, more overtly evil, or that's just part of the veil, sort of the cover story that uh, that you create. So do you see any uh, possibilities in there that you would want to embellish? I mean, I think that there's another, you know, sort of couples of, of things that you might want to look at. There's, I, I love the idea that you mentioned that you can sort of follow the track of the head just by tracking French history from 1793 to 1955, when we don't actually know where the head is. And we just assume that every time it gets turned over, something god awful happens in France. And so, you know, you, you imagine that there's like a secret war over, over, over his head in 1940 and the Lacagoule is looking for it. Uh, the, the hood is actually named because they're the mystic container for the sacred head of France and something like that. Um, and, and so you, you can have all manner of fun as, with the head as a MacGuffin. Apparently you can use it as a Shakespeare MacGuffin because some people think that he was uh, Ferdinand of Navarre in Love's Labor's Lost because he was a philosophical king from Navarre, which I think is <laughs> arguing sort of out, well, well outside the facts, but, you know, hell, it's Shakespeare, so why not? And then you can also, I think sort of use the um uh the the notion that he was uh, baptized um with uh garlic and uh and wine which is the way that um uh, you baptize them in, in in Navarre not in uh you know uh the rest of France as maybe some sort of uh, vampire thing that his head is a powerful anti-vampire token or maybe that because it's baptized by garlic um, it has power over vampires in some way. It, 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 I think you can tie vampires into this. Uh, and perhaps this is just me having Dracula dossier on the brain, but I, I think you, you see the word garlic and it's not too, too big a jump away to, to say that there's vampires involved somewhere. And I have uh, dream hounds on the brain, so if you uh, have the head show up in your dream hounds of Paris campaign, it's a, a symbol of rule and authority, which of course the hate. Uh, surrealists uh, despise. And it's even worse that it's a symbol of a, a good king because a good king uh, argues in favor of all of the bad kings by existing. And so uh, what you want to do is uh, maybe they find the head, uh, perhaps they liberate it from one of the various occult societies that you were talking about. And well, what do you want to do if you want to reduce the amount of old-style right-wing hierarchical authority from the world, well, then you would spirit the head back into the dreamlands. Mm -hmm. And so once it's in the dreamlands, it's out of this world, it's out of France. And so the old authority uh, becomes even less powerful. And then so you might have certain effects that uh, benefit the surrealist. Things become more chaotic in the, uh, in the waking world. They might become more calm in the uh, dreamland. So there might be a debate among the surrealist characters as to where in the dreamlands you're going to take it because uh, maybe there's an area that they've been making chaotic. They don't want to make that less chaotic. So maybe there's another area that's too chaotic or one that they don't care about. So they have to, and you, you know, once you have the king's head, all sorts of other people start being attracted to you. All of the, uh, other kings of the dreamlands become concerned, perhaps, that you're being so cavalier with a royal noggin. And so uh, there might be sort of chases. And uh, once you've you know, got it out of Paris, you're not out of the woods. You've got to emplace it somehow in wherever you've got it in the dreamlands. And so you can have a whole string of uh, scenarios sort of arising from what you could do with the head. And then uh, if you have a campaign that's set near the uh, dwindling days of the surrealist era as the... Uh, uh, 40s are approaching and thus the, the occupation, it might be this weird sort of moral dilemma where, you know, even though you're a, a fervent revolutionary, the 
benevolent authority of a French king might suddenly be less horrible to contemplate than the overtly fascistic uh, evil authority of uh, the, the Germans. And so maybe now your task is to go find the head and smuggle it back into the waking world in order that it's uh, French magic can then fight the uh, the uh, German magic that, of course, you've cribbed from Ken's Nazi occult book. Mm-hmm. When you said move the head of King Henry into the dreamlands, of course, the first thing that I think is, well, that means King Henry can start dreaming again. Because now you've got his head in there, and he's going to start dreaming, and his dreams start showing up in the waking world. Because they're not in the dreamlands, they're, he's in the dreamlands. And because he's dead, he's like got it all backwards. And I think you can maybe do a thing where that's the cause of the sort of rebirth of surrealism in the 60s, that it's the dreams of King Henry in the dreamlands that are sort of waking up this weird, uh, twisted version of the surrealists. And you've got uh, Gerard de Sede writing the uh, the satires that eventually become the basis of the whole Holy, Holy Blood, Holy Grail myth, that that sort of springs up in the 60s and then blows up in the 80s. And you just you can probably start looking for all royalist sentiment in 60s and 70s pop culture. So the David Boy being the thin white duke and uh, the court of the Crimson King and all kinds. Anything, anytime anyone mentions king, anytime in the 60s uh, becomes a uh, an, an emblem of uh, of Henry the Fourth's power. Um, uh, you know, reaching out from the dreamlands and maybe you are esotericists in the 1960s or 70s, which, speaking of thankless jobs, um, you have to <laughs> find uh, the, 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 the head of, of King Henry IV and, and bring it back out of, of the dreamlands to sort of, you know, tamp down all the craziness that, or you wouldn't be esoteric, you'd be Order Veritas, I mean, and um, uh, trying to tamp down the, the, the wave of outer dark uh, breakdown that uh, the 60s and 70s are manifesting all of a sudden as the sort of the time bomb, the delayed charge, the surrealists, perhaps unbeknownst to themselves, set off by moving this royal head uh, between two worlds. Well, another thing you might do if you have a head that's actually aware and is dead and you move it into the dreamlands, which, as we know, is the kingdom of the ghouls, uh, the complication in going and retrieving the head might well be that, well, he's the king of the ghouls now. Right, yeah. And so the ghouls are worshipping his now animated head and... uh, following uh, his orders, and, uh, you know, he's a pretty good administrator, he's good at solving... And a great uh, military man, he, he ruled, as he said, with with weapons in his hand and his butt in the saddle. So then, in that case, if he's a great military ruler, maybe you get back to the Dreamlands and the ghouls have taken over the place. Yeah. They've, uh, they're no longer just shambling around in graves, they've uh, uh, taken over Tsar and Celeface and Serenian, and they don't want their military genius totem being taken away from them and having everything crumble and then turn into a, you know, a, uh, a Peter Max wonderland. Uh, so you've got to, you've got to fight. It's, it's all, it's all Roger Dean album. Yes. Yeah, so you've got to fight your way through a ghoul army to, uh, go and, uh, uh get him back. Right. Um, oh man, that's, that's pretty awesome. I like, I like, because the ghouls, if you remember, even when they're just read by, led by Randolph Carter, who, uh, among his many virtues is not counted necessarily great strategic skill, become a pretty powerful army in the, in the, in the dream quest. So under a, a genius like uh, Henry IV, there, there's no stopping these guys. Well, I think uh, we've got a, a whole bunch of ideas there for uh, Stephanie to uh, use in, uh, in her games, and she can uh, file off the uh, property-specific details that we've uh, uh, supplied, but still uh, Or she can of... get Dreamhounds and go right into the property-specific details. Nothing exactly to stop Stephanie. Exactly so. Yes. 
you're right. Uh, here I was being uncommercial for a moment. Uh, uh, well, at any rate, I think we've uh, well covered the possibilities and can now move to our next segment. often have you said to yourself, if only there were an equivalent to Robin Laws's brilliant, award-winning, improvisational Armitage Files campaign, only for Knight's Black Agents, Ken Height's vampire spy thriller RPG. More often than you might believe, Robin. So often, in fact, that I went and made one, called the Dracula Dossier, and it's kickstarting now. You interest me strangely. That's just how I interest, I suppose. Does this dossier have any connection to Bram Stoker's immortal novel? It's not a novel, Robin. It was the after-action report of Operation Edom, the first 1894 attempt by British intelligence to recruit a vampire. We've unredacted Stoker's first draft of that report, and now the truth can be told. Told in the form of a collaborative, improvisational spy thriller gaming, through the hyper-surveilled streets of London and the desolate Carpathian Mountains, I devoutly hope. Your hopes are answered. You play burned spies who follow the clues in the Dracula dossier to hunt and kill Dracula for good 120 years later. Clues, you say? Clues, I do say. Not just the sources and methods Stoker's first draft revealed, but annotations to the dossier made by three generations of MI6 analysts tracking Edom's operations since then. A doomed commando operation in World War II Romania, a mysterious mole hunt in 1970s London, and the dubious 2005 decision to unleash Dracula on Al-Qaeda as the ultimate deniable asset. And since everyone knows the story of Dracula, players can jump into the action anywhere they want, investigate any lead, and find danger and mystery waiting for them. Danger? Mystery? Dozens of NPCs with many possible agendas? Possibly vampirized organizations from the Romanian secret police on down? locations from Carfax to a CIA black site in Bucharest, and maybe even a magic item or two, if that's the kind of thing you want to look for in your game, of course. So to sum up, the Dracula dossier is a fully improvisational Knight's Black Agents campaign built around the secret history of both Stoker's novel and of European espionage, full of dangerous encounters and subtle conspiracies, and it's kickstarting now. And just like Edom did in 1894, I've brought in an Irish writer to do all the hard bit. Hellgrain <laughs> superstar Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is busily writing up a stretch goal or three even as we speak. You, Gareth, Bragg, Stoker, Van Helsing, Count Dracula, could this game get any more bloated with blood and or awesomeness? You'll have to follow the clues to the Kickstarter page to find out, Robin. Clues like Pelgrain, Dracula, Dossier. But bring an appetite for adventure, because we're cooking with garlic. The clatter of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the smell of pizza sitting open because someone ordered too many slices of cheese and not enough slices of pepperoni tell us that we have entered the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And much like the false player choice to order vegetarian pizza, false <laughs> player choices can harm your game in other ways. And Robin, uh, specifically, we're looking at player choices versus character I guess, sort of believability or truth to themselves. What's what's right. the conflict that you see there, and why is it worthy of our august attention? Well, and, and first of all, I think I'd like to take it out of the realm of harm, of things that harm our game. I think this is something more that I'm observing as a thing, okay. and we can decide for ourselves whether it's a thing you need to do anything about. So I think I'm so. Just, it's not like ordering a vegetarian pizza at all, then. Yeah, at okay. this point, I'm just saying, hey, there's squirrels in the park. 
I'm not saying they're evil. We must eradicate the squirrels. Right. I'm just observing something that happens. And that is that in the fiction that so many role-playing game series emulates, big changes of mind on the part of the lead characters have to be really well established in order that we believe that they are actually happening to those characters rather than just being a contrivance uh, that causes something else cool in the storyline to happen that obviously the creator wants to happen. So, for example, if you uh, suddenly have a, a character who throughout the course of a series is depicted as being uh, sort of anti-military, but then uh, in one episode suddenly he uh, suits up and uh, decides to lead an army. If you've been establishing throughout the course of uh, the previous episodes why he would make that momentous decision that goes against something that's been established, that makes sense to you, and it's something, in fact, you often see because... Right. It adds good dramatic uh, character moments. Right. The character has gone through a big arc to go from... Uh, one position to its seeming opposite. Sometimes, though, in a role-playing game, players can surprise you by taking the available choices and going off in a direction that if you saw it in the TV show of your series, you'd go, what the heck? What? Why, is he, why are they suddenly doing that? Um, and so the, the thing that had me in mind of this, actually, was uh, recently in the Feng Shui campaign... Uh, the characters were in the netherworld, which is a sort of timeless area between the four main time junctures, and they uh, had been mildly acquainted with some uh, Mongol barbarians, and they went over to visit them, and the Mongol barbarians said, oh, well, a, a new portal has opened up to the, the Song dynasty, and we're going to go and join the Catan barbarians there and raid the Song dynasty. And I just thought that this was a cool little detail that I was adding that made the world seem you know, dynamic right. and that it moved the Other people them. were using the portals and it wasn't just these guys. Yeah. yeah. But what the players all immediately said was, oh, Mongols, cool. Let's go be northern barbarians. And then they went off and they suddenly uh, abandoned the uh, pressing matter of, of the plot lines that were current in effect. <laughs> and then they went off and at the request of the, uh, the Catan barbarians, then went and uh, attacked and captured a group of uh, Song Dynasty uh, generals. The Mongols had described the Song Dynasty as corrupt, but that was all the evidence that they had that suggested that these guys were bad guys. Mm -hmm. And throughout the fight, I was doing everything I could to signal that these actually were noble, sympathetic fighters for the Song Dynasty, so that even if their administration was corrupt, which historically it, it was in this period... Because historically it was a medieval administration. And historically the current emperor occupied the imperial throne by virtue of having uh, murdered his brother. <laughs> well, you know, you don't know his brother. That might not have been a corrupt choice. It, it, well, it tends to cast a pall. The, <laughs> yeah. the brother... But anyway, uh, and, and, and history says it's possible that he killed his brother. So, of course, in an action movie right, he must setting have, like yeah. Feng Shui, that means definitely killed his brother. Right. It's like possibly a Jesuit assassinated uh, Army of the Fourth. Yeah, perhaps. Um, and so, anyway, they, they go and they fight these guys and they take them back to the Catan camp. And, of course, the Catan drawn quarter them. Now, if that was a TV episode, there would be a big sturm und drang about why they did this. Mm -hmm. Now, after the fact, the, the, a justification kind of arose where, oh, maybe we can use the Catan forces to go and attack our, uh, our enemy in hell. Uh, but at the time, that was not part of the equation. So if you saw that in a 
TV show, there'd be a, a big debate between the characters and they would struggle with the choice and it would sort of be set up with the, you know, that they had this real Hobson's choice between doing, you know, one bad thing and another bad thing and which thing was worse. But this was all entered into in a spirit of, hey, Mongols. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is something that I, as a GM, was not going to step on. Right. And although I was sort of giving them cues to, you know, make it a more complex choice, that I think it's still more important that players get to exercise choice, even if the characters seem to be making cavalier or, in fact, out-of-character decisions. And I think this just kind of goes to the fact that, you know, gaming is a collaborative effort and that uh, sometimes the results are strange, not because you've deprived people of choice, but because you've provided a choice that you do not expect them to take. So, Ken, have you encountered anything sort of similar in, in your own gaming? And do you see this as a park full of squirrels or a park full of squirrels that need to be eradicated? park full of rabid squirrels. I think that in my own gaming, the character choices... I, I don't know if it's just because the players tend to build sort of more... Psych, they, they, they tend to build from a psychological viewpoint a lot of times as well. And maybe that's as a reaction to my games being very sort of front and center intellectual puzzles first and everything else second. That Your first goal is to go in and understand the world, and your second goal is maybe to take part in a, in a timeless story that will reach across time. And so I think my players, as a result of that, try to build their, their, their sort of emotional core um, in at the beginning. I don't see an awful lot of times that my players surprise me with a, a big switch that, you know, you wouldn't believe in the TV show. I think a lot of times it's because... I may have painted the world in perhaps too many shades of gray. So when the, the the guys who have been sort of painted as not the evil empire, but maybe the space Spartans offered to uh, set the characters up with a better battleship and recruit them, their response is, yeah, sounds good to us. As opposed to, no, we will fight you space Spartans. But I can't really say that that's not believable because the characters, you know, it's a, it's a post-fall uh, space world, much like Ashen Stars was. So there's no way to say what's the legitimate or the illegitimate claimant to to restoring the Commonwealth of Mankind. And every now and again, they, they do things that are weird choices, but I don't think that they are weird out-of-character choices. They're just choices because they're they're trying to outsmart me and be, because they enjoy the look on my face when they say, D is Batman invulnerable to someone dropping a space station on Batman? And then I have to say, I, I, I don't think that maybe he is. And so then they do that, and, and that's... But they like to do that not because their characters wouldn't destroy a space station, they would do that in a heartbeat, or because their characters wouldn't fight Batman, that's why Batman is theirs for them to fight, but um, they want to sort of go at it from an unexpected way. So I don't know that, I, I even necessarily know that there are squirrels in the park, I think those might be just groundhogs or woodchucks or something, and I don't see an, a ton of squirrels a lot of, of the time. It, it, and again, I'm not really sure why that is, because it's not like, you know, my characters are, or my players are necessarily really trying to um, uh, live their character and be immersive and all that. I just think that maybe it's, you know, from having played a bunch of Unknown Armies and a bunch of other games that are kind of about character choice, they're more, you know, um, involved in what their characters would choose. Or maybe it's just a artifact of knowing that the game's going to run for longer than four months that lets them feel like they have to sort of build in their own character development. So let's say that in your next trail campaign, a thing that you don't encounter much happens. And as the investigators go and they encounter the cultists, they say, 
hey, all of this magical stuff looks kind of cool. Let's set ourselves up as, a, as the new cultists. Now, that's full of story possibilities, mm -hmm. but at the same time, that might come completely out of nowhere and seem weird compared to the way they've been playing them to date. Do you just run with that because it's got all sorts of cool things that can happen? Because certainly in the Mongol example, that, that's not... Uh, you know, that created more story possibilities mm -hmm. than they're just going, oh, that's an interesting detail, but we're going to continue on with this way. Or do you care enough to say, convince me that you guys would do this? This seems like an abrupt shift. Give me more to go on in terms of making this seem real. Would you do that? Or is that too heavy a GM foot? Because it would then lead them to go, oh, no, I guess we shouldn't do that. I, I think making it a Trail of Cthulhu example is... You know, you're 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 not you're not making your strongest possible choice there because, first of all, the whole fundamental core story of Trail of Cthulhu is that you're not the cultists, right? So it would be as if we're playing Deadlands and they said, and you know, can we go to Paris and live out a life amongst the artistic demimond and not shoot people? And actually, in a Deadlands game, I'd probably say that sure right away, but in but in Trail, it's it's a very fundamental story about opposing the cultists. Now I could see them saying we want to set ourselves up as um, in, in a Bookhounds campaign, for example, saying, you know, well, we've got all this magical library, and I think we'll just sell it to people we can trust to only worship Nodens or something. And that would be an interesting play with choice. And the other thing about Trail is they find a bunch of magic things. They turn to me and they say, we want to be cultists. I know why they decided that. It's because one of those magic things perverted their minds. And in, 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 a, in the TV show, you would know that, too, because they would walk into the room of magic uh, things after killing the cult and saying, now we're the new cult, and everyone watching would know why they did that. So I, I think that I might allow it to play out and then begin to taint that decision in their minds and let them come to the discovery that the reason they did that was because the, you know, severed hull of, skull of um, uh, Henry IV or whatever had, had poisoned their minds in favor of, of the mythos. Um, in, in another game where... You know, the, the choice between order and chaos is not as stark. I'm, I would almost certainly run with it just because it's more fun. And that, I did that, for example, in the Shakespeare game that I talked about, in which my, uh, one of my characters was a, was a, was a manticore and was sort of playing against the rest of the game by deciding that he was giving into his manticore nature. And that made total character believable sense, but it sort of, you know, threatened to derail the whole, the whole campaign away from what I'd seen as, as a taught story of, um, uh, theatrical rivalry, but because it led into a much better, more pregnant story space, I, I allowed that, that, that set of choices to happen as opposed to trying to head him off at the pass and saying, Craig, normally you're the voice of reason in this game. Why are you, why are you not now? <laughs> Another situation where uh, believability and choice collide is when the players lose heart in a situation oh. where the characters would not. Yeah, that's that's a bad one. So that if you've got characters who are kind of iconic heroes, but all of a sudden they convince themselves that the bad guys are too powerful to ever overcome and say, well, let's just go and hide. Mm -hmm. uh, let's flee. Let's shut everything down. And when you actually do see that in uh, the source material, when all of a sudden, you know, in Star Trek Three. Kirk suddenly sees a bunch of Klingons on his bridge as a reason to ditch the whole ship. Mm -hmm. That seems unbelievable. Yes, it seems and, nonsensical. Right, because it's the you know power level of the threat being just sort of arbitrarily jacked around in a mm -hmm. way that you know, you know, just even in a not very good episode of the TV show, that would not be a, a crisis that would require that level of, of sacrifice. And the analog of that, I think, in uh, in role playing is when they decide to flee or turtle in a way that 
in a universe that is set up as a heroic universe where the bad guys exist in order for them to defeat them. Mm -hmm. So since that leads to a less interesting outcome, which is them deciding not to engage with the plot line at hand, do you then step in and say, convince me that you guys would be a bunch of cowards running away with your tails uh, between your legs? Or do you just let that play out and then have the plot pursue them and, and prove to them that they can't run away because that second option keeps the story moving, but it also chumps the characters. It makes them seem uh, less impressive and less cool. I mean, I, I, my reaction nine times out of 10 is going to be let them turtle and then reveal that their turtling is useless because in an heroic universe, it should be useless, right? For the right. hero to turtle. And so if they've chosen to be the guys who run away, I will privilege that by amping up the threat and driving the threat towards where they're turtling and begin to work against the things that they thought were keeping them safe because that's what the threat would do. And I consider that to be, you know, it maintains the character believability of the Dark Lord or, or the or Cthulhu or the bad guy or whoever it is that they're running away from um, to, uh, to, to sort of crush them. I have had games where the players have said, you know what, this uh, vampire conspiracy in, you know, steampunk England is too awful. We're going to go to where we know there's a portal to another world, and we're just going to leave. And we don't care if the vampires run England. We hate England. We hate vampires. We hate being here. This world is depressing. And when we said we wanted to play in a steampunk world, we thought we were going to not get any punk. And so they did. They just left the, the setting. And I can't... I did not then have the vampires, like, stop them from leaving. I had the vampires sort of stand at the other end of the gangplank and taunt them. But... You know, I didn't have them chase them into the new universe because they were... But you didn't say, this just makes you look like a bunch of unisex blouses. No, I, 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 the vampires um, uh, were, were taunting them not in not in gendered terms because, after all, it was Victorian England. Well, I, I degendered that as much right, as I okay. but they Right, um, okay. Uh, but they did sort of, you know, sort of... Uh, I forget what they did, but it was like eat a baby or something as they you know, ran away just to point up the, the cowardice of their actions. But no, I did not then chase them into the new universe and say, here you are... Um, you know, now these vampires are going to be a threat forever. I took that as the as the no, Ken, we hate those guys that it was. I mean, admittedly, when they ran into the new universe, they wound up on a spaceship going to the damn story because I was sick of people derailing my, my campaign for a bit. But uh, that was just, that wasn't really a um, realistic or unrealistic choice. Well, uh, speaking of choices, I think I'm going to uh, make the choice to go over, feed the squirrels some peanuts, and then head to our next segment. Have you ever wanted to build your own post-apocalyptic wasteland? Only if we can then heroically fashion a new civilization from the ashes of the old. Well, then we're in luck, because this episode is brought to you in part by Legacy Life Among the Ruins from UFO Press. Legacy combines the post-apocalyptic weirdness of Fallout on Roadside Picnic with the epic-spanning strategy of Alpha Centauri, or Civilization. Use its step-by-step -step guide to design the post-catastrophic setting of your choice. Or your nightmares. Populate it with a clan of survivors from one of five archetypes. Merchants, tyrants, lawgivers, zealots, and law keepers. 
From every generation strides a new family hero. Maybe a hunter, an elder, a scavenger, a survivor. Whoever you choose must solve this generation's crisis using the relics of previous heroes. Legacy uses a heavily modified Apocalypse World engine to provide both quick action and tough choices. On Kickstarter now until December 5th. Like all the smart Kickstarter kids do, it shoots you the current draft text as soon as you pledge. So you can get to reconstructing that devastated world right away. Remember, scroungers, that's Legacy Life Among the Ruins, now at a Kickstarter near you. Or just left of that burning tire fire several stops down from the cannibal-infested grain silo. Once more, the consulting occultist has decamped from his usual sort of pseudo-Englishy confines to a Parisian cafe where uh, the paintings on the wall dance and shift at the periphery of your vision, and there are excellent croissants, uh, but terrible coffee. And uh, so the consulting occultist this time is going to, as part of our grand tie-in to Dreamhounds of Paris, uh, continue talking about major figures of the French occult during the 20s and 30s. And last week, we sort of alluded to this guy. Now we're going to do him in more detail. That's Gerard Encos. Ken, can you uh, start over with a one-on-one -on, -one on this guy and why he's interesting and cool and why our Dreamhounds characters might want to meet him? Okay, uh, Gerard Encos is a guy who is uh, beloved to my heart because... He uh, basically hangs out with everybody. Everyone's pretty fond of him. They all want him in their magic club. He starts a bunch of magic societies of his own. And he is a, one hesitates to say hack writer, but he is a prolific writer of uh, works on the occult that most... Nothing of, wrong with being a prolific writer. Nothing wrong with being prolific. And many of his works have not survived. But then again, I suspect most of my works will not uh, survive reputationally. So what's uh, what's wrong with that? And he did rewrite one of the seminal works on the occult tarot. He's one of the guys who sort of turns it from a fun card game that you play with simpletons to awesome occult magic. He, he sort of resurrects the notion that it's a fortune-telling thing and then starts to add a mysterious understanding and occult legendary to it. Uh, his buddy, uh, Eliphas Lavie's buddy, Paul Christian, had done that, I think, before him, but he sort of... Uh, no one's ever heard of Paul Christian, but uh, everyone's heard of Eliphas Lavie and Pappas. And so he... He sort of opened up the occult tarot, and that's one of the big things that he did, as well as founding a bunch of magic orders in France uh, that all uh, contributed to the, uh, or founding, co-founding, being present at the founding of, a bunch of magical orders in France that contributed to that sort of uh, belle époque, mauve decade, uh, magical flavor that, that France in the 1890s and 1900s had. And so he flourishes in that period, or does he continue on until the, the 20s and 30s? Sadly, he does not. He uh, is a doctor, as well as being an occultist, because he recognizes he has to earn a living. He is a very well-regarded doctor. He, um, he takes uh, his doctorate in medical philosophy and then goes out and opens up his clinic, and everyone likes him just fine. And in, when the war breaks out in 1914, he volunteers for the French Army Medical Corps, and uh, while uh, there, catches tuberculosis and dies in 1916 uh, in his early 50s. And it was a great shame because I suspect there would have been a great deal more fun coming from Papus uh, in the 20s and 30s, certainly, if he'd been allowed to, to run around and, and touch everything with his charming Rococo sensibilities. But sadly, he was taken from us by World War I um, and uh, was not part 
of the of the of the big scene that we're talking about, except that the things that he started kept sort of trundling along. Uh, in the um, uh, the Martinist order and the Cabalistic uh, order, do rose plus cross, and some of the other stuff that he did. So uh, one of the ideas he develops, uh, as you mentioned, is that the uh, tarot is a uh, tool for divination. Uh, what other ideas did he introduce or amplify uh, that uh, made it through into the uh, occult thought of others? Uh, the, the tarot is, is a big thing. The other thing that he sort of does is he takes... Eliphas Lavi, and he's sort of reawakening um, ceremonial magic, and he's reawakening the sort of uh, notion of of summoning spirits that is a big deal. I mean, Encos is uh, sort of converted to the occult by the spiritist movement in France, the Kardecist occult movement, and then that draws him to Eliphas Lavi, and he's part of uh, Lavi's circle at the sort of tail end of Lavi's life. And then he is also part of what brings the, the sort of the Gnostic sensibility into, into the mainstream of the occult, uh, because he is part of the L'Eglise Gnostique and uh, a pseudo-Cathar, and so he winds up in charge of the Gnostic Church of France uh, and, and makes that a, a bigger um, uh, sort of a deal. He's sort of, you know, if you ask how ex-occultist found out about why occultist, the answer is it was because Papus uh, told him and probably dug up the papers for it. And I should mention before I get uh, too fond of Encos, that he is not immune to the great sin of uh, occultists, namely anti-Semitism, and he uh, connives at, con uh, is hanging out with, is equally uh, willing to associate himself with people who are blaming the Jews for uh, rumbles in the Franco-Russian uh, relationship. And he is also, at this time, probably, I don't say provably, but I will say probably, working with or for the French uh, intelligence service, because he keeps showing up in the, in the Russian court and saying, um, oh no, the spirits want you to stay allied to France and not listen to that Rasputin jerk. And part of it is just that, you know, I, I assume that if you're Papus, you've met enough occult jerks that you know Rasputin is one. But also, he's he's very much trying to keep uh, Russia on side um, in the run-up to World War One, and therefore, I suspect that even if he goes to Russia initially just as a simple occultist with a with a love of, of Freemasons in his heart, when he comes back the second time, the Ducium Bureau has said, hey, uh, Dr. Enkos, how about you help us out with this? And I suspect that he probably then, uh, from that point, is serving, well, I guess three masters, if you count um, uh, Hippocrates. But he's uh, he's got a lot going on. But that does, I suspect it's it's that intelligence connection that leads him a lot into the uh, the anti-Zionist and, and, frankly, anti-Semitic uh, stuff that, that comes out under his or his partner's pen. So uh, that gives us uh, a, a sort of a, a framework to work with in terms of what we're thinking about in terms of putting him in a game. So if you're running a uh, Paris by Gaslight campaign mm -hmm. and you run into him, how do you play him as a GM? Who, What traits do you play up? Well, I, th I think as a GM, you play him up as sort of the friendly uh, figure, and if you're an occultist, he welcomes you into the occult, and he makes sure that you've got, you know, you and all the good book stars are, and he introduces you to the guy that you've been trying to meet for the last two sessions, and he's always just sort of there, hovering on the outside, and he sort of shows up, and then he leaves again, and he's always got some mysterious other thing that he's doing, and you can leave it sort of open question as to whether or not he is working for the bad guys, whoever they happen to be in your Paris by Gaslight game, or if he is, uh, he's, he's only hangs out with the bad guys because he literally hangs out with everyone in the French occult scene. But, but I don't, 
I don't think he makes a super great mastermind. I think he makes a really great um, sort of public face of the conspiracy, whatever it is. And then he sort of shows up and he's like, no, it's good old uh, Papoose, uh, which is, I, th I think it means uh, healer or doctor even. That's his magical name that he was given. It may have been by Levy. It was by somebody. He, he got the, no, it wasn't by Levy. It was by someone else. Um, but, he, but he got the magic name uh, Papoose because he was a doctor. And so I think that you, and, you know, the whole bit of, you know, going into the military at age 49 when he could easily have not done that and then working so hard that he dies of tuberculosis. You know, he, he may have been an anti-Semite, but he was not a, a vile human being outside that hiccup, one certainly uh, seems to think. Right, and he was certainly not the only uh, anti-rabbit, anti-Semite in France or anywhere else at that point. And I don't know how rabbit he was, because you can read virtually everything else that he wrote, and the Jews don't come into it. He's just sort of, he's writing his anti-Semitism to order in that case, and I don't, I, one would like to have believed that he would say, no, no, I cannot do it, the Jews invented the Kabbalah, but in fact, what he did was, yeah, all right, that sounds plausible, and, you know, jumps right in with both feet. So, uh, scenario is, uh, you, uh, the player characters are assigned to be his bodyguards when you go with him to Russia right. to meet Rasputin, what happens? You, you, you show up to, um, and, and, the, and the timing doesn't quite work out because he's he, he he never meets Rasputin. Rasputin doesn't come out of the uh the the, the, the Siberian forests while So the Papus official stories tell us. Right, yes. He probably meets Rasputin or he meets like the John the Baptist of the of Rasputin. But anyhow, um you know what? He might have met Rasputin. I had Rasputin a little bit later than he actually is. Um yeah, so he he shows up you're with uh, him in Saint Petersburg in nineteen oh six and Rasputin has just shown up to the court it's sort of a young Rasputin before he becomes uh, famously awful. The raw raw the Rasputin, raw, raw Rasputin. As, it, as, it, as it were. I, I think that what, what you have to do is you, 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 you either want to just play it as a straight up, this is Rasputin, he's never going to be a good guy, Papus is there, but he's you know got his other stuff to do, and, and he's like, look, your job is to keep um, uh, Scopsy self-castrating murderers away from me while I do this very intricate ritual that you're not smart enough to understand. And then, as you're doing that, you're realizing um, Papoose is very badly distracted, and there's all these French spies going around, and we're not sure that he's 110%. And so you start, uh, I think maybe to mirror Papoose, you have to join all of these other occult societies in Russia to make sure that they aren't somehow screwing with Papoose's working, and then you bring little nuggets of information back to him, and he's like your uh, Mycroft Holmes, who sort of sits in his in, in his chambers, you know, hung with... Uh, with with string and and Hebrew letters and 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 maps of um, uh, the astral plane, or you do it as a switch up and make Rasputin actually nope. Generally, he's got an angel in him, and he's not got one of those angels that cares what you think. Uh, it, it's a scary Old Testament style angel. It's an angel of death and an angel of yeah. We're gonna wash away the czar because the czar is terrible. Um, but and maybe even Rasputin doesn't know that necessarily. But yeah, it turns out that Papus is in league with the French intelligence and with. Uh, the anti-Semitic proto-fools who are in Russia at this time, and he's go he's sort of acting as this locus for satanic energy, just like his old foes in what's called the War of the Roses, because there were two competing Rosicrucian orders that were engaging in saber duels and magical duels both back in the 1880s. I I maybe I buried the lead on that, but anyway... <laughs> Okay, yeah, so what's our scenario where you are drawn into the War of the Roses? <laughs> yes. Anyway, the, uh, the, the War of the Roses is... Uh, there's a bunch of different groups that are all want to be the Rosicrucian order, and they all accuse each other of being Satanists, and they're probably all right. Uh, and Papus is brought into it by a guy who says, hey, you're good at joining orders, join my order, and then it turns out that now there's a big squabble over 
who is, is the right thing, and he has to fight a sword fight with a guy, and then they just sort of, because they're not particularly good at sword fighting, they don't actually kill anyone, and so they become best friends because they're French, and that's what happens after you sword fight a guy. And so he does his part to defuse the War of the Roses, but he's certainly there at the center of this um, uh, of this sort of satanic slap fight um, uh, between um, people like um, uh, Stanislas de Gaita, who uh, is a who is, who is a fairly horrible person, frankly, and with the Abbe Boulan, who is even worse, and and these guys are all part of the um, uh, of that sort of dark side of the French occult underground uh, that uh, Huysmans uh, sort of paints in La Basse, and uh, uh, you can sort of, if you read De Maupassant, you get sort of a sense of what's going on uh, with the, the French psyche in the 1880s and 1890s. That's driving them to, to that kind of craziness. So he uh, died uh, during the war of uh, tuberculosis, but he uh, died in a feverish state, let us uh, propose, in which he was yes. uh, transported to the uh, dreamlands, and therefore he died while dreaming. And we all know that uh, the rule is that if you die while dreaming, your dream form uh, remains uh, sentient but f- uh, frozen in time in the uh, dreamland. So you can't change or develop, but your identity or a portion of it remains in the dream land. So uh, let's say our surrealist characters in the late 20s, or early 30s meet Papoose in the dreamlands. What does he want from them? What does he ask them to do? I, I think that Papoose in the dreamlands is either trying to get back to France because he's got so he's left something undone, right? World War I interrupted his great work, and he had some great plan that he was doing that no one could see all of, because only he had it in his head. And he wants to reincarnate or he wants to be brought in and he's like surely you're uh you're, you guys know someone in france who's basically soulless let's just move me into their body and i have magical rituals and he gives them you know answers to where all his magical books are hidden and, he, and he's trying to use these guys in the waking world as his pawns in the same way that he's using all these other occult societies and the goal is for him to get out of the dreamlands and into someone's uh you know sadly magically emptied body so that he can sort of walk around as a as a revived uh, sorcerer, and then it's, you know, ideally you, you paint him still as this friendly, happy-go-lucky, roly-poly, rumbledy tumbledy oh, goodness, this is, reminds me of drinking coffee with Apollinaire type guy, and then you realize, oh, what have we just done? We've actually made a, an undying revenant sorcerer wandering around Paris, <laughs> who is also uh, was in league with the worst elements of the old order, and how could we be so stupid? Um, or the thing that he wants to do in the Dreamlands is to work against you surrealists because he, of course, is part of that, you know, Rococo, um, symbolist, decadent order that the Dreamlands got painted to look like in the first place. And he doesn't like it when a bunch of uh, piano tours and light bulb headed dudes show up. He wants Griffins and, um, uh, the, the four beasts of the apocalypse and good old fashioned, uh, Rosicrucian symbolism back. He wants the, he wants the Dreamlands to look like the Rider Waite tarot. He doesn't want right. it to look like and a was bunch he, of... Would you, was he affiliated with the with the right during his life? Politically? Yeah. I mean, he hangs out with an awful lot of... If he's, if he's working for French intelligence, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he almost certainly is... I, I don't know necessarily what his strong political beliefs are, but I think that he would have drifted to the right just because so much of the occult did in that era and because he's also got a... Um, uh, a bunch of um, sort of aristocratic and, and uh, haute bourgeois friends. Right. So he's, he also opposes the psychic revolution. And so yeah, the, I think he would oppose it just in general. His because... dream form could be a, a bad guy for an antagonist for mm-hmm. the surrealists. Right. But I think it's more fun if it's like a secret antagonist because they see him. It, it, it's sort of the notion where 
you know, they, they read, um, Apollinaire into their movement or they read, you know, some of these guys in their movement. And if they'd actually been in the movement, if Edgar Allan Poe is in the dream lens, he's like, you people are crazy. None of this is about the death of a beautiful woman. Your aesthetic is terrible. I'm going to destroy you all with the power of my, my, my black falling tower. Right. And, and he's an occultist. So they, uh, see him as a figure of irrationality. And so mm-hmm. he can uh, turn on them. He might not turn on, he might, the face he presents to them might not be, Oh, I'm a roly poly happy uncle. It might be, you know, I, I have a saber I can use to slash the old order. And then mm-hmm. when you find out that's actually a saber he wants to use to reinstate the, uh, the, the order. order. Right. Yeah. I think that, oh man, the, the, the possibilities with Pappas as a, as, as a dreamlands figure are, because I, I, I'm suddenly thinking that the other thing that he's going to do is if anyone is going to know who all the other dreamers are, it's going to be him. Because maybe he's like a guy that you meet if you go into the Dreamlands with any knowledge, if, with any membership in the Martinist Order or any knowledge of uh, the, the the Kabbalah or whatever. And if you go into the Dreamlands with that in your mind, Pappas is the guy you meet in the library at um, uh, at Laneth, or, or he's hanging out in Ulthar uh, at a, in a cafe covered in cats and, um, uh, and and croissant crumbs, and he sort of says, says, oh, have you met, you know, Steve from uh, America, and he's in the Dreamlands, and have you met Randolph, and Randolph, come over and meet my friends, and and he's setting up all kinds of little social orders in the Dreamlands, because that's just the kind of person he is, and maybe he doesn't even he's have a, a bigger He's a connector agenda. in the Malcolm Gladwell right. sense yeah. of the word. And, and so he is just sort of there to um, facilitate meetings in the Dreamlands, but what that means is, because nothing ever happens innocently in the Dreamlands or without significance... He's becoming the center of all of these new cults that are rising, and all of them have their own agendas. And he becomes your universal key that if you, the Surrealists, don't like this group of, of, of say, Japanese and Californian dreamers that have all met through the works of George Sterling and Clark Ashton Smith, and that you're like, I, I don't like those guys, and Lafcadio Hearn, maybe, and, you know, and, and you're like, oh, no, they're, they're fine. They just want to interpret the Kabbalah as Japanese. And so you have... All manner of different possible weird groups that Papus keeps bringing you into, will you or nil you, because that's what he does. He's a magnet. Well, I think that's all sorts of uh, cool, actionable, gameable possibilities from uh, Gerard and Coase. And so that concludes our third segment and sets up our final segment. The correctly uh, slanted light casting just the right amount of shadow, the smell of uh, uh, beautiful flowers arranged just so, the uh, sound of a lilting Strauss waltz tell us that the culture hut is about to be blown up by our next star, Andre Breton, who hates all of those things. And Robin, what the hell is Andre Breton's problem besides being a commie? What's, what's got up his butt? Okay, so uh, Andrew Baton is he's born in 1896. He lives until the 50s, 54, I think. Um, and he is the Pope of the Surrealist movement. And, of course, this was a uh, satirical jab at him by others who did not appreciate his 
status in basically this movement that he founded around a word that Guillaume Apollinaire used in the 20s and, and 30s, and he tried to continue it after the war, uh, even though it had sort of lost all of its spark. And so he was a guy who sat in the cafe and decided who did and didn't belong to the Surrealist movement, and if you did things like write novels or have a job or uh, be too interested in music or work with someone he didn't approve of, he would kick you out of the movement, and then maybe later he would let you uh, back in. And although it seems absurd that this movement that was based on imagination run riot and trying to uh, overturn uh, the very uh, subconscious of mankind through uh, activist art terrorism was also very doctrinaire and uh, insisted that people show up to meetings. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he had this um, really interesting dichotomy. You know, his dramatic poles, if you were to do this in drama system, are, you know, uh, chaos versus order. And he's in both camps. And he uh, had kind of a, a domineering mother. He felt he'd kind of been uh, cheated out of his uh, childhood, although he was an emotional authoritarian. He always sought other authorities to kick back against. Uh, and uh, so uh, legend has it that, you know, his father was a cop. Actually, his father was a civilian worker in a, in a police department. Uh, and he was a poet. Uh, he wrote in a very sort of intellectual, spare style that is uh, very particularly French, I think. So his problem, that he would phrase it, is that uh, there is a stultifying order imposing itself on mankind. It's a stultifying Western order, so you want to bring in uh, forces from outside, whether it's the forces of the occult, the suppressed history of that, or forces from non-Western societies, which he saw as superior to um, European and American society. And he wanted to remake the world, and uh, he wanted to do it on his terms, and he wanted uh, everyone else working with him to be very clearly working under him and under his authority. Um, you mentioned that he was a, a communist, but one point in his favor is that almost uniquely among left-leaning French intellectuals of his era, he figured out uh, what Stalin was up to and that Stalin was up to no good at about the earliest point someone in France could have figured that out during the 36 uh, show trials. And mm -hmm. he turns on Stalin hard and never turns back at any point. And that caused him a lot of trouble with his uh, you know, fellow uh, leftists. Up until then, there's a lot of funny stories where he was always trying to join the French Communist Party and work with them, but they were utterly baffled by him. And so they would do things like, <laughs> Which is fair. you know, he had, they assigned him to go to meetings, you know, with a, with the pipe fitters union in order to uh, properly understand the role of the artist in serving the proletariat. And he was always trying to convince uh, the communist authorities that they needed uh, more uh, crazy Freudian uh, subconscious madness and seances in uh, communist party doctrine. But uh, unlike a lot of uh, figures of great stature in the French art scene, he turned against Stalin hard. Uh, he, he turned to Trotsky, not to, you know, uh, he didn't become a, a democratic socialist or anything, but a huge portion of the French art scene, even after World War II, was uh, really devotedly Stalinist, and that's a time when you should know better, and and people didn't. So he has to, uh, if you're grading people on a curve of romantic communism versus you should know better communism, he's definitely on the you know romantic uh, end of that scale. Um, so yeah, he's got he, so he's got that going for him. He doesn't like Stalin in 1936. So good for you, Andre. What else do we do with Andre if he's not if if, he, if his job is just to yell at you? Does that 
I mean, is that does that sort of make him like you know the Mister Roper of the Surrealists? He just sort of shows up and while you're trying to to go off and and mess with the Dreamlands, what what do you do with him in a game? It, it, since uh, I think you mentioned that he doesn't get to go into the Dreamlands because he's so uh, pedantic and 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 earth minded. Right. So he's he's always a at least in the way that I suggest you run it. He's always a. a GMC, a Game Master character. And he is, yeah, that sort of Alazon figure, that authority figure that you have to deal with and negotiate around. And, uh, you know, he will call the meeting, and the thing that goes on at the meeting is the thing that happens in the actual uh, history of the Surrealists that you're reenacting in that part of the game. And then, you know, at the end of the meeting, you pull everybody aside and you say, so what are we going to do in the Dreamlands tonight? So he's sort of a figure of... Uh, kind of uh, irony. He's also a figure who can deliver exposition because he's the theorist of the group. He provides uh, information to you. And he's the one who sort of is the one who makes the announcements that shift surrealism from one period to another. So, for example, in the early 20s, when everybody's playing, when they're all playing with seances and trying to uh, reach the uh, realm beyond, he's the one who decides that it's all getting too dangerous and weird and says, no, we got to stop. We're going in a different direction away from automatism. Now, we use the player characters may continue uh, on with your seances, or you may go along with that, and that marks a, a, a shift. So he's sort of um, the GM figure, but he is uh, deliberately crippled in a way that prevents him from taking control of the interesting parts of the narrative. So he's sort of a, a shepherd figure who, who takes you through the story and at times uh, functions as an antagonist. So given all that, are there other bits out of his uh, career? I know that he, he, he goes to Mexico and he meets Trotsky, um, which I suppose if I'd been in Mexico in 1938, I'd have met Trotsky. And I'm not real fond of Trotsky, just but I would have done it just to say I did. Um, is there... Is there something there going on that, that maybe is, is significant uh, in the world of games or, God forbid, in the world of actual history and art? Well, I think his, his interesting travels from a gaming perspective, um, you could sort of work him into a, uh, a 30s conspiracy sort of political story through the Trotsky angle, or you can look at his trip to Haiti because if, he was always uh, fascinated with ethnography, with uh, non-Western cultures. And uh, during his exile from Paris during the war, he winds up going to Haiti. Uh, he attends uh, voodoo rituals. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a scenario waiting to happen. And he also inflames the local Haitians as a symbol of uh, intellectual rebellion and uh, sort of grows something there. And so uh, you could have a uh, a scenario that sort of centers around uh, him and the forces that he awakens when uh, when he goes there. I love that idea. I mean, the, the voodoo-surrealism combo, that's pretty great. Yeah, and as I mentioned in, in the last segment, after the war, he after he overcomes psychic warfare with a voodoo doll sitting on his shelf, uh, he then writes a, a book on uh, art and magic. And so he can, uh, you could maybe portray him, if you're playing him in a later era, as someone who does who has gained, you know, a magical awakening in Haiti that he wanted all the time in Paris and was kind of constantly striving toward. Uh, one of the attempts, uh, one of the things they did in Paris was they would go on surrealist walks in which they were trying to find connections through random things just by randomly ambling around. And it's portrayed in Dream Hands of Paris as a failed attempt to enter the dreamlands. Well, maybe he finally does get to enter the dreamlands once he leaves Paris behind because Paris is this symbolism uh, symbolizes his orderly side, his intellectual side, and he has to leave that behind at the voodoo ritual. So it could be that he has this anagnosis and then after it's tragically too late, that's when he becomes more of a mage figure when he's uh, surrealism is kind of forgotten and uh, 
he's uh, on the outs with the rest of the art establishment because he's uh, not willing to toe the Stalinist line. And, uh, you know, afterwards he can become more sympathetic when he's uh, more on the outs. He also, uh, after the, when he's in New York after the war, talks about a new mythology. He decides that the way uh, he sort of gives up on the idea of a, a violent psychic revolution and decides uh, to create a new mythology for people to engage with that is more positive. And he posits the existence of the great invisibles, these spirits or entities just on the edge of understanding uh, that mankind can come into uh, contact with. So he decides to basically create a new pantheon. Well, we all know that as Cthulhu players, that nothing ever goes wrong with that. And then he can't possibly be talking about any uh, entities that we've uh, been thinking of specifically. Even before that, uh, he was uh, friends with the famous uh, French uh, bookseller, uh, Adrien Monnier. And he would talk about to her about uh, he was seeking artistic transcendence by communing with the black god or invisible one which was uh, embodied the, the very essence of life itself. Now, in order to preserve the conceit in Dreams Hound of Paris that he's, uh, you know, magic always eludes him, it could be that he's always pursuing the black god and never quite meets one. But Peter yeah, Lothotep's faultless instinct for being a jerk is to not appear to Andre Breton. <laughs> and so uh, you as the player <laughs> characters might notice that there's this guy sitting over there sort of uh, with this... A glittering mocking expression on his face just listening to Breton talk about this and then maybe you could go over and engage with him uh, afterwards and then you meet him again in uh, in the dreamlands and uh, you know you might out of your desire to sort of spite uh, Breton you uh, whether you're playing Dali or Bunuel or Man Ray or whoever might uh, you know cozy up to this guy and only later discover that uh, you've also been led into a trap as well I also kind of like the idea of, you know, especially in that sort of post-war where he's going around and he's hanging out with Algerian rebels and um, uh, anarchists and all kinds of cool dudes, that um, you are, you know, some sort of group, maybe you're the Ordo, Ordo Veritas, right? And you're trying to shut down magic, and the best way to do it is to bring Andre Breton, he's like the Haitian and heroes, that you bring him uh, whenever you want to make the magic not work anymore. He's the cooler, right, of, of magic. Right. and. You're, 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 you have, you get, you, you have to talk him into it. He's not just going to go with you to some salon because he, what if you're a communist or what if you're part of the, 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 the God forbid, you know, a, you know, a, a social democrat? Um, you, you can't be trusted with any of or, this or stuff. Or even worse, a member of the right. right. Oh, well, uh, you know, someone on the right wouldn't even, would be burned to flames approaching Andre Breton. But yeah, he, um, and so, and so you have to sort of work his, way of wrecking everything around while making sure you don't have any of your magic items with you because he'll just wash them out. Uh, he's like a walking EMP for that stuff. I think that it, it might not work for a whole campaign, but it might be fun as a, as, as a one scenario that you're, that you're doing, you know, uh, gentlemen, the man you're looking at is Andre Breton. He will wreck any magical ritual that he's part of. Your job is to stop the end of the world. Yes. Go. Um, and he can also just get you into physical trouble uh, in yes. Paris because uh, he was a street fighter and he encouraged the other surrealists to be as well. So there are stories where one famous art event that Tristan Zara, who at that point had broken with him, Zara was in and out of the surrealist movement. Uh, he was feuding with Zara because he had to displace Zara in order to be the uh, head of the left-wing uh, avant-garde. And uh, Zara 
committed a number of effronteries uh, with this program of events. He, uh, for one thing, he uh, allowed uh, Jean Cocteau, the nemes- Breton's nemesis, to participate, and also mm-hmm. another poet started uh, shouting out that various revered figures were dead on the field of battle, including uh, Picasso, who was in the audience. And Breton, throughout his career, was trying to cozy up to Picasso, who was, you know, always one rung above him in status, and uh, at times made surrealist work and is a playable character in Dreamhounds. And so anyway, he leaps up on stage and breaks this dude's uh, arm with this uh, trademark cane that he carries, and it's a cane that is covered with uh, sculptures of weird slug creatures and uh, uh, naked priapic figures. Anyway, breaks the guy's arm, or there's a number point where they attack another fellow surrealist bar because he's named it after a, a novel that they love, and that's that's an offense. So you can create other incidents like that where Breton is like, okay, get out the troops, get out the knives, and and brickbats, we're going to go and bust up this event, or we're just going to go and protest uh, this other art event. And so that can uh, lead you into other dangerous situations, which can then become uh, more occulty as the scenario develops. I, I kind of like the idea of, of Breton being with the, the player characters, and they're doing the, okay, everything's cool, we're just going to watch these guys, and we're, we're going to get in vital intelligence for, for our actual mission, whatever it is. We're going to find out what the the Kagul guys are up to, and we'll you know, be able to trap them later. And then Breton, like, up out of his chair, smashing tables. Oh, now you're in a bar fight. And I think I think more you need more bar fights in a game about art. I think that that's probably true. Yeah, because you want to emphasize the fact that you know this was not a bunch of uh, poseurs hanging out at a cocktail party. This was a right. a battle, and sometimes it was a, a physical battle. It's not something I endorse in real life, but of course it's something that uh, can lead to uh, interesting, unpredictable action in your game. And another thing about Breton is you can play him as having magical abilities, because actually he made some, he claimed to be clairvoyant and did make some accurate predictions. So you can have him be, uh, rather than being the cooler, he can be a sort of an oracle who just doesn't have the right powers to move through into the dreamland. So mm-hmm. having an Oracle GMC is always very useful in terms of uh, moving the story forward. He successfully predicted, uh, you know, that the there was going to be war in 1939. Well, he, uh, at a certain point of history, that's not so amazing, but in 1925, mm-hmm. that's a pretty good <laughs> one. And so uh, you can uh, emphasize that side of him as well and give him some sort of magical power or awareness, just not enough to move him into the dreamland so that, you know, you might make it your mission to get Breton through. And who knows, maybe uh, in your game, you do finally get him through on, on, onto the side of the dreamlands. And, uh, uh, you know, what happens then when he, he now owes you this incredible favor? Does he clasp you to his bosom or is that intolerable to him that you've placed right, him? Right. And now he has to destroy now you. He has to destroy you now that you've given him power. And I do want to mention that apparently um, the anthropologist uh, Levi Strauss used to hang out with Breton and said that Breton had a sort of a divinatory sense for uh, what art objects were uh, authentic. And he could go with him into, like, antique stores and, and uh, you know, galleries and whatnot, and they would pick up some, you know, uh, idol from, you know, wherever, and Breton would, would know which was the real deal and which wasn't the real deal. Yeah, he was collecting that stuff since childhood, uh, way mm-hmm. before most people were. And so that's another way that you can give him a, a more of a genre twist, is he can be the guy who has the magic item you need and mm-hmm. either 
you are trying to get in there and sneak it out of his collection to use it un- in a way that he's unaware of, or he can be the, your sort of magical cue who says, mm-hmm. well, for, for this, uh, you're definitely going to need this monkey paw, but be careful, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it has a weird resonance to it and will possibly bring you misfortune. And while you're in the dreamland, see if you can set up a beacon that will allow me to come through. And the, and the notion that, you know, it's be- the only reason that he can keep all those magical artifacts is he's got, like, thousands of, of paintings and, and fetishes and and, ma- and kachina dolls and all kinds of stuff. Maybe the only reason they can all, you know, fit into his apartment magically is that he's there damping them out. And so once they're taken out of his apartment, then they're armed. But, you know, they don't go off and, like, strangle him in the night because he's Andre Breton. Nothing magic ever hurts him. Right. Yeah, one magic thing stops him from writing a book for a while. Yeah, but that's because the, that's the god working through it. That's not the yeah, magic Yeah, so thing. he can be the, the Indiana Jones uh, warehouse of mm-hmm. 30s France where uh, you might want to, you know, give him this all, all of these powerful objects that are otherwise dangerous, put them in his collection at the end because... Uh, they're all going to cancel each other out or he's going to cancel them out so that you can safely leave them with him. You just hope that he doesn't loan them out to any of your other surrealists when there's internal struggles within the group as to what to do during the Dreamlands. Or run into money problems and have to sell them. Yes, exactly so. And and he did. Uh, he also had an incredible eye for art and he knew uh, you know, who the interesting uh, people were and... Uh, he he did uh, trade paintings and uh, and sell paintings. So, but you know there might be a time. And you know this is a Dream Hands of Paris campaign. Many of those paintings will also be magical, um, right. and uh, maybe they will act. Their magic might be activated by leaving them with his ethnographic collection yeah. for for a while. It's a it's like a binary toxin. Yeah, um, and yeah. then you know, but and he did have to sell off things so that once uh, one of these paintings of the Dreamlands he uh, sells to somebody else. Well, maybe that. Uh, creates a gate or creates other, uh, you know, draws supernatural beings that are uh, earthly, not on the dreamlands to the owner of that painting. So there's all sorts of ways that you can well, use one him. of his little demon figures actually walks through the painting into the dreamlands. And now you're like, oh, you should get that back because it's really powerful when it's not in my apartment. Yes, exactly. So, so there's a ton of stuff that you can, uh, that you can do with Breton either in a dream hand specific campaign or just a thirties uh, Paris campaign or fifties Paris campaign, as we found out, should we, um, uh, ever get around to our <laughs> seminal work on the Algerian uh, revolution, yes. which I'm sure is coming any time now to to sate that huge gaming demand for for games about the uh, OAS and the FCL or or uh, New York during the war, because he uh, he was there then he uh, had a rough time he, he didn't know why uh, the Americans wouldn't learn French in order to speak with him and <laughs> not the first or last Frenchman to wonder that and that that goes both ways um, and uh, the informality of American life uh, really frustrated him because suddenly the formality with which he wanted to conduct aesthetic meetings was even more absurd in the American context. So you could also, and what he did in, in during his American sojourn, it was a, a pretty dire time for him, but there were all of these great ethnographic treasures in New York antique shops that no one else was buying. And so he was able to amass Mm -hmm. a big chunk of his collection for a song. So uh, you could also have a magic item campaign set in New York during the war in which you're uh, following Breton around and he's amassing, you know, his American adjunct to that collection. And, you know, uh, he, in real life, he took that stuff, you know, back to Paris with him, but 
you know, maybe there's a, a cache of stuff that he had to leave behind in uh, upstate New York somewhere, and you can, mm-hmm. uh, in a contemporary or maybe game... maybe the you know, like, there, were, there was a famously, there was a break-in, and the Ananerba stole it, and they got it only so far when one of the magics got them, and it's like the Lost Dutchman Mine, that somewhere in the, you know, in, in, the, in, in Westchester or, or White Plains or somewhere in, in the suburbs around New York, there's a, a box full of incredibly powerful magic items that uh, the Ananerba stole from uh, Andre Breton, but then they were undone before they could tell anyone where it is, and it becomes sort of a, an occult uh, treasure that you're always looking for, the, the uh, like I say, the Lost Dutchman Mine or the Blackbeard's treasure right. of, um, of, of, of the occult. And, you know, maybe that cash... Uh, you know, we talked about how the, there would be no counterculture without the Surrealists, so maybe, you know, that turned into a commune during the uh, 60s and 70s, and then maybe there were some crazy mm-hmm. murders that uh, uh, took place that uh, sort of killed that off when the uh, 60s turned into the 70s and died. And so, uh, you know, what has happened there uh, since? You know, is there a, uh, a love canal of magic somewhere that Andrew Breton left behind? Oh yeah. Oh, well, there's no no bottom to the Andre Breton well. We thought uh we thought Papus was good, but uh Breton has once more shown us up. Indeed, yes. So he's a a fascinating uh, figure and he's uh, someone fun for the GM to play while everybody else gets to play all of these other uh uh, wild and crazy characters at the time. Okay, well, we will um, uh, close the door, which is now hanging in space in a blue-black background surrounded by eerie writhing shapes on the uh, culture hut and um, uh, wander away unaffected by the weirdness around us and out of the podcast, in fact. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. UFO Press. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Ken's Dracula Dossier Kickstarter for Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us believable as continuing podcasters by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or royal noggin by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>